If you have a Bible, I'm going to turn a corner here, and we're just going to start off with the Lord's Prayer today. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, and we're going to read it all together. Uh, and then I'm going to kind of dive into what it is the Lord's going to do today because you need to be prepared. I'm just going to be honest with you. I try to do this when we have services like this. I learned a while ago, about two years ago, I did a service where uh, I didn't prepare people at the beginning. And by the end, people were leaving and they were upset, but not for the right reasons. And uh, <laughs> ever since then, I've been like, you know what, I'm going to start prepping people and uh, letting them know that God's going to do some powerful stuff. And it's, it might not be easy. But uh, it's going to be special, and it's going to be necessary. And so I challenge you to go with me, because I'm going to go some places I don't want to go. I went there during 9 o'clock, and the crowd was with me. And uh, I don't know if you talked to anybody when they left, but there was a whole lot of reflection going on when we left, which is why we're here, right? To hear from the Spirit, to read the Scripture, and to be impacted. We're not here to just be entertained or to, to learn something new. We're here to be impacted relationally by our God. Yes? All right, let's read together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this. Let's read it all together. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I had so many people come up to me last week and say they memorized this verse as a child with that, with that appendage, the, and thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory and all that, and they were like, I had no idea that that, that wasn't Bible. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that in our faith that has kind of been sprinkled in. That it, it, it's not that it's not helpful, but it's not scripture, and we believe in scripture here. We believe in, in studying what God says. So last week, Last week, we took that first part of the verse, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we broke that down and we talked about the holiness of God and the will of God and how that's going to impact my life when I see God that way. This week um, is a little different. And this week is a very simple phrase. It's just 11 and 12. And it says this, we just read it, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, I want to do one simple thing that I, that I may or may not mention again. I want you to watch how much is packed inside just this verse. And then I want it to blow your mind later in the week when you realize you have an entire book written as a love letter for you. But just this verse, I believe, could, could transform the way you live your life if you were willing to go where I feel like the Holy Spirit wants to take us. Because... At the core of this verse, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. At the core of this verse is this huge human question of, will I be okay? Will I be okay? First off, we have give us this day our daily bread. This has to do with trusting God with our external lives, with our day-to-day -day lives with our stuff that, that, that we think about sometimes consciously if things are hard, but most of the time subconsciously. When will I get my next meal? Where will I go if it's cold? What will I do if, 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 if uh, things begin to become lean? How will I function uh, if, if I get sick? The day-to-day -day external sort of things that happen in our lives that, that if we're honest, we think about, but sometimes we more obsess over or worry about uh, when there are actually things on our minds, and then when we don't think about them, they're just completely subconscious, and we just put them out of our, out of our, out of our view. The second part of this is, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this, quite simply, has to do with the exact opposite, yet exactly the same as the external life's health, and it's our internal life and health. Forgiving debt that I have occurred, or, or forgiving others who have occurred debt against me, or forgiving uh, uh, debt that, has, that I have brought onto other people is something that is critical to the emotional health of who I am. So this is what this means. This means for us to start this sermon, you have to go to that place. You have to go to the place where you're really honest with, and maybe this is, this is all going to be different people in different places, so you allow yourself to be in which one you are. We'll start with folks who just worry, worry, worry about the day-to-day -day life that they live, the day-to-day -day life that they experience. They worry because maybe like me, you were a sick kid. 
See, I had cancer as a kid, so I was a very sick kid. And day-to-day for me became a real-life ordeal. On the, on the ward that I, that I lived in over at Dornbecker, I would see kids go into surgery and not come out. So you best believe when it was my day for surgery, I was, I was playing it up. I remember I had a 57 Chevy remote control car one day. It's time for surgery. They said it's time for surgery. And I was like, just one more round. I remember this. I remember this. Just one more round. I used to drive it into the elevator and then try to get out before the doors closed. That was my game. And the nurse came and got me. He's like, Danny, today's the day for your procedure. And I was like, I just got one more round around the nurse's station. Just one more round. And, and I let it be the best and fastest round I've ever had. And I know that subconsciously as a little kid, you know what I was thinking? It might be my last. I'm going to rip it up. <laughs> That's what you do. That's what you do. You're wild and crazy when you're that age and you're sick. The day-to-day stuff is hard. Some of you, you struggle with the day-to-day. I got to experience all kinds of people. I never stopped, uh, thought struggled with the day-to-day. When the economy crashed back in the late 2000s, I'll tell you what, the people who were like the most refined and the most like, life is good, those were the people who I never would have thought crumbled, who crumbled. The people who struggled all the time, they just struggled through that season like everybody else. It was the people who couldn't take vacations, who were humiliated by the reality they couldn't get a new car this year, or they had to sell their second home. True story, in a church I was in, I watched people bawling their eyes out over having to pull their kids out of private school. And, I, and I'm not saying it's bad. Hear me, I'm not mocking, okay? What I'm saying is, is oftentimes it's people who appear to have it all together that actually are the ones who struggle the most with day-to-day because they have so much identity wrapped up in it. Now, you might be one of those people. Sit in that place right now, day-to-day. Now, another group of people. You're people who've been injured emotionally. You've been wounded. You've had things happen to you that you've never told anybody. You've had things happen to you. The last thing you want to do is think about some of that stuff, even a little bit at church. You have injured. You've been injured. You've been wounded. And those things are still real and sore and bleeding in your life. Then there's another group of people in this room. And you're people who have offended. You're people who have caused pain. You're people who have done harm. You're people who, who right now you're thinking, I don't know if I've ever made that quite right. Now let me just say this about the offended and the injured. Everybody's both. I'm both. I've offended some people in ways that I'm not sure I can ever recover. And I've been injured by people in ways I'm not sure I ever have recovered. If I'm really honest and authentic about my life, I am someone that wrestles exactly with this question Am I going to be okay day to day? Am I going to be okay to let go of these things that have happened to me? Am I going to be okay if no one ever lets go of the things I've done to them? This is a very human verse. This is why God says, after you've given over to my will and proclaimed me holy, the next thing you know you're supposed to pray, Lord, I give you my day to day, and I give you my situation by situation, my internal I give you all the stuff that's happening and all the stuff that happens. And I trust you in it, God. I warned you ahead of time that we were going to this place, so don't look at me like that. Some of you are like, this is not what I'm about today. Listen, we preach scripture and scripture goes there, so we go there. I want to give you some time to process this place, give you some time to kind of experience it, to feel it. And so I'm going to pray for you we're going to take just a minute. We're just going to be in this place, and then I'm going to come and tell you about the joy God says regarding wrestling with our day-to-day and our situation-by-situation, wrestling with our external and our internal lives, being authentic and real before him who is holy and whose will is always accomplished. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot of people who have courageously walked into a very difficult spot right now. People, Lord, who have allowed their minds to go places they haven't gone in a very long time. I ask, Lord, that through the presence of your spirit and through the revealing of your scripture, that you would meet us in that place. I know you do. You say you will. I ask, Lord, that in this place, people would allow some of that tension to fill up within them so that they can bring it to you, so that they can talk about it with you, so that there can be relationship, and togetherness. And so, Lord, we just take a moment right now to just be in this place, be human, be in need. 
both injured and offending both beautiful and broken people. We just give you these moments now in Jesus' name. Had me fooled. Told me that I was nothing without you. Oh, but after everything you've done, I can thank you for how strong I have become. Cause you brought the flames and you put me through hell I had to learn how to fight for myself And we both know all the truth I could tell I'll just say this is I wish you farewell I hope you're somewhere praying Praying I hope your soul is changing Changing I hope you find your this song and there's a couple different reasons that I like it. Uh, I like this song because it's super, super sloppy in in its intent. So you have lines like, I hope you're somewhere praying and basically like, I hope you you are damaged beyond repair. Uh, and, And it's super human, right? It's super really, really honest and authentic and kind of, kind of a guttural in what it does. And I'm pretty sure someone bet me I couldn't use it in church, but I just did. So (laughs) I just, I I want to be in that place today where we can talk honestly about this idea that we have hurt people and we've been hurt, that we've wanted the best for people. And let's be honest, we've wanted the worst and we've wanted the best for ourselves. And let's be honest, sometimes we've wanted the worst. We wrestle with this idea of how to be okay because we don't know how to really balance both what's been done to us and what we've done to others. And so our external and our internal lives spin around to the point that we don't know what to do, so we do nothing and we pretend. Do you want to know how I know this at this young, incredibly youthful age? (laughs) And it's kind of sad, actually, why I know this. I know this. Because one unfortunate part of my job is holding the hands of people hours before they leave this planet. And I want to tell you from firsthand experiences, what you're going to think about the few hours before, you're, before you die, you are not thinking about right now. Everything changes about your life when you're just a few hours from there. Suddenly, you are wanting me to get people in the room that you can apologize to, that you can make sure they're okay. Suddenly, offenses and things that happen to you don't matter. Suddenly, you are forgiving people to restore relationship, to bring back community. Suddenly, you are, you are, you are doing everything you can to make sure that you're okay with this world you're leaving behind. 
Whether it's your physical leave behind, the house and the cars and the titles. I heard of a man recently who thought he was going to die. And so from the emergency room, just last week, he called his son and said, I want you to know where the titles to the cars are. This is where the trailer receipt is. This is where this is. I want you to be okay. And I want you to know about my external life. People in the same way try to pull relationships into the room to internally make things okay. I think that's why inside this prayer, God says, once you have good perspective that I am holy and that you are not, that it is about my will and not yours, the next thing you got to do is say, okay, God, give me my daily bread. Take over my external life. Forgive my debts as, as I forgive my debtors. Help me make sure I'm okay in my internal life. Immediately, once the will of God stuff is worked out, he goes to the prayer. Most of us, whether we say it exactly this way or not, will be praying a few hours before we die. Is my external and internal world taken care of? What else matters? This is why it's the next part of the prayer, and this is why it's so very important for us to unpack. So that's what we're going to do. We admit that physical and emotional wounds happen. We admit that we're concerned about all these things together. Now, all of us have different degrees of injuries and offenses. All of us have hurt people differently and been hurt by people differently. And so I'm not asking us to make everything the same equality. I'm just asking us to put ourselves in that same human place. Let's start off with just the beginning verse. Give us this day our daily bread, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. This has to do, as I said, trusting God with our day-to-day. Trusting God with our day-to-day, everyday stuff. This petition of the Lord's Prayer teaches us to come to God in a spirit of humble dependence, asking him to provide what we need and to sustain us physically from day to day. Now, it's easy to see why he said bread, both in that culture and this one, for bread remains and always has been a huge part and a powerful symbol of basically provision. Even today, whichever spouse makes more money in the home is the breadwinner. It's a common word, and it means not just pray for bread, like God's like, listen, at the very least, I promise you're going to get some bread. I think some people think that, like, well, I know this, whether I'm starving or not, bread's coming somewhere. Now, there's all kinds of scriptural tie-ins to this. Jesus was the bread of life. God gave bread to the Egyptians when they, or to the Israelites when they fled Egypt and were in the desert. There's all kinds of beautiful tie-ins. But let's just take it today for what exactly it means. It means that God wants to provide for your specific needs. Not just your general needs, by the way. It's a very specific prayer. Sustenance. Now, this is important because the problem is that when we pray in general then we only see the hand of God's providence in general. So we'll say, God, make sure my life's good. And then if life's not good, we're like, well, make sure it's a little, it's your good versus my good, God. Make sure it's my good, my version of good. See, this prayer is teaching us in contrast to pray specifically because by pouring out our souls and our needs specifically, we can see specific answers to prayers. When we ask God for specific things, we talked about this last week, God answers specifically. Now, he may not always answer how you want. That's why it's great to ask God specifically, God, I want this. What people don't realize is that God answers, we said this last week, all prayers that are within his will. He just doesn't answer them how we want often. So he may say, I will answer that prayer with a maybe. What? I've had God answers lots of prayers with maybes. Like I can feel it. I've had him answer no And then the worst thing that I've happened is I'll try to give God two different choices and I'll have him answer yes to both. Have you ever been there? I think God answers yes to to multiple prayers multiple times. I don't think God cares about some of the things you, you think he cares about and I think he cares about other things you don't think he cares about. You're like, God, should I take this job or not? And God's like, I don't care. I think sometimes, true story, I don't really care. I just want you working and providing for your family, and I'd like you to be happy. Yeah, but should I take the job on the east side or the west side? Should I be like I-5 or 205? Should I? God's like, I, I, I don't care. <laughs> I really believe that. Now, I, it doesn't mean he doesn't care for you, but there's not a wrong job decision. Now, maybe sometimes there is, and then maybe sometimes somebody cuts you off in traffic, and you're like, God, should I pull up next to them and symbol to them how much... <laughs> 
right, how much I disrespect the decision they just made. And you're like, why would God care about that? It's a traffic thing. And God's like, no, I care a lot about that. Matter of fact, I'm going to have them follow you all the way to church this Sunday morning (laughs) and park in your parking spot and sit right behind you right now. I think you care about some stuff God doesn't care about, and I think you don't care about some stuff God does care about. But unless you pray specifically, how are you supposed to know? You're supposed to spend time with him, and you're supposed to lift these things to him. We should take comfort in knowing that our physical needs are met and that we have food or bread, bread excuse me, in our lives to meet our needs. Psalm 139.16 says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed me when as yet there was none of them. This is such a specific thing. See, as a kid who was sick, I got to spend time with other kids that were sick. As a matter of fact, recently, I got to spend time with a grandfather whose grandson was dying of, I believe it was leukemia. And he, him and I would just have coffee, and it was just you know, kind of time for us to share back and forth together. And, and eventually his grandson passed away. We had a coffee and I asked him, tell me about it. Tell me about this relationship and tell me about how did you do that? And he goes, you know, the Holy Spirit gave me some insight I've never seen before. And this is a, a man who's much older than me and lived a lot longer than me and read a lot more of the Bible than me. And he goes, but Danny, I've never seen this before. And it, it spoke so specifically to my my cancer story or or anyone's real sickness or worry about our day-to-day life story. He said, I was sitting with my grandson and my grandson said, he said, "Uh, Papa, why do I have this and why am I going to die? Can you imagine? And yet I've asked or thought to ask that very same question. And this grandfather says to me with tears in his eyes, this is so unbelievably powerful. He says, I said to him this verse, God's eyes have seen your unformed substance. In his book you were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for you, when as yet there were none of them. And then he says to his grandson, he goes, I want you to know something about our God. Our God's gonna make sure you get every single month, day, hour, and second you were supposed to have. Nobody's taken your life without his permission. Every single month, day, hour, minute you are supposed to have in this room, you're going to get. Everyone. You know, they told me that I'd be walking with a cane by the time I was 30 to the point I practice. As a teenager, as a young teenager, I practice. And I actually thought a cane would have been pretty sexy. I was going to pull it off. (laughs) I remember being 13 thinking, I think I could do this. It'd be cooler if I had an eye patch too, but... I can't smoke a pipe yet, but I thought I could pull this off super mysterious. That's what they told me, right? And I I have a limp to a a point, but I'm not walking with a cane. They also told me I'd never be able to have children. I have two. They told me a whole bunch of stuff. And the reality is that God has given me every single day I'm supposed to have. I joked with someone recently that, you know, I I live kind of less and less, but month to month thinking, like they told me, hey, your cancer could come back, your cancer could come back. And, and the reality is I could just, I, you know, I'll probably die in a car accident in three years when God's like, listen, it's not the cancer you should worry about. You should have taken better driving lessons, Danny. That's the thing. But the truth of it is we worry about things when we don't, when we don't come to realize as the first part of this prayer says, God, your will be done. And then as Jesus says, now give him credit for the day today that you're going to get every single day you were supposed to get. If you were supposed to live to be 87 and a half years old and die in June... You're going to die in June at 87 and a half years old. If you were going to get cancer like me and pass early, if, 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 this is the point of trusting God with our daily bread. We don't live in such a way that even, even the flowers of the field, Scripture says, lives better than us. They're out there praising God, open it up. Some jerk like me comes by and cuts them off and gives them to his wife. They're not praising God in the first part of the month going, I hope nobody cuts me off. You know what we realize? If we get ugly, there's a better chance that we could stay here. They're like, nope, full beauty, and if I go, I go. I one time watched a sparrow get hunted by a cat, and I could have saved the sparrow, but I didn't. (laughs) I could have clapped or made a noise, but I didn't. I watched this cat with fascination. As he got like 15 feet in pure silence while this sparrow was just singing a song and hopping around. I'll never forget it. And I was like, this is going to happen. 
And it did happen. It was quick. Kind of. But here's what was incredible about it. Here's what was incredible as we think about God who says, be like the sparrows. They don't worry about the day-to-day. That bird, it lived every single life. Yes, making sure to steward its own life. But it didn't think, I wonder if tomorrow I'll get eaten by a cat. I should just stay in this tree. I can't go down to the ground. I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder, I wonder. Nerves, nerves, feathers gone, feathers gone until he's just up in a tree somewhere. Like, I just don't want to be here anymore. I can't do it anymore. He sang his song, he lived his life, and then he went away. Flowers do their thing and then they go away. Now, I'm not trying to minimize human life to that thing. What I'm saying is scripture equates it to the same position, which is that we are but vapors on this earth. We are here for a short while, scripture says, and then we're gone. And we are to live our lives. We are to proclaim him worthy. We are to be glorious inside of sickness or, or soaring. It, 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 it does nothing for us to sit and think all day long. I wonder when the cat and cancer is going to come. There's nothing you can do about cats and cancer oftentimes. You're just supposed to be there and do what you're called to do. Give us our daily bread, God, and allow us to focus upon you with our external lives, nothing but you. Rest in the knowledge that God will give you every day, hour, minute, and second, your promise. Now, this next part of the verse is a little bit more complicated, yet it's a wonderful tone we've just set. See, the next part of the verse starts diving inside Matthew 6, 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this, as I said, has to do with trusting God with our internal selves. This isn't day by day. This is situation by situation. Forgiveness, when it comes to church people, is probably one of the most misunderstood biblical concepts we can talk about. As a matter of fact, The only reason I'm even talking to you about it today is not because I learned it well in church, and I've done a fair amount of church. It's because about a year and a half, two years ago, I found myself internally tied up. Part of it was the season of life I was walking into. Part of it was uh, my story and some of the stuff I've shared with you guys, my, my childhood and those sorts of things. And part of it was you all, by the way, because pastoring is, is, is not all 35 minute speeches, And so I went, and I shared this with the church quite a while ago, and found myself a therapist, a man by the name of Byron Kaler. I don't even mind telling you his name. Some of you know him. Some of you don't. He doesn't work here in Vancouver because I didn't want him to know all of you. (laughs) And I started walking through what I'll call my stuff. And I started unpacking different things, things I didn't even know that I thought about the world. This is where the EHS stuff partly came from. Because I realized that until I could add things to my life, you know that principle that what got you where you are without other things won't get you where you want to be? Let me say it again. That's why you're supposed to be taking notes right now, people. Okay, the things that get you to where you are. So let me just give you an example. This whole thing that you see before you was a problem when I was 13 years old as I would preach to my mother why we shouldn't have to go to bed at 9 o'clock or why we should get to go to Disneyland again, or why I shouldn't get in trouble and my sister should. See, this gift wasn't a gift early on. It was a problem, and it led to all kinds of different crises in my life, this mouth of mine. As a matter of fact, my wife told me, I think two days ago, I love you, especially when you're not talking. (laughs) That is some brutal truth right there. But I, I, it's what I do. I process, right? That's what I do. But this gift, without other disciplines, without other structures, could not get me to a place where I could be where I want to be. So you cannot go where you want to go without other structures. So again, the gifts that got you where you are, without other additional things, will not get you where you want to go. It's just a matter of fact. You can only be so charismatic. You can only be so eloquent. And then you got to go figure some stuff out and actually teach something of substance. And you got to believe the stuff you're teaching. So I went and got a therapist and I sat and still sit for an hour a week and talk about me and what I think. And why do I think that? Where did that come from? What does it even mean to have something come from something? 
Why am I worried about this? And I processed these things. And eventually, in my sessions, we got to forgiveness. And I had some stuff to forgive. And I had some shame about some stuff I didn't know if it was forgiven. And so I got what I'm about to teach you right now. And I stole every ounce of it. (laughs) And now I want to give it to you. Not because I'm doing it perfectly, but because like seeing that sparrow with that cat, I was able to see myself and the things that I wrestle with, and I was able to find a whole bunch of freedom inside my story when it came to forgiveness. So again, the verse that we're looking at is 612, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's the first thing you need to know. Forgiveness, to actually physically forgive, is supposed to mean to literally release. It's supposed to mean to literally release. And yet what's so difficult about forgiveness is that like so many principles in the Bible, it sits within a biblical paradox, which is, which is purposeful. See, the least shall be greatest, the first, or the, yeah, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. All those kinds of things are paradox that cause us to step back and go, well, hold on. How does that work? That's exactly what they're supposed to do. How is the, the, the least greatest? How is the last first? And how is, in, when it comes to forgiveness, how is it that we are told on one hand to hold people accountable, and on the other hand, we're told to have incredible compassion beyond understanding? How does that work? How do I look at you and say, listen, in the name of all that is good and holy, you are crazy and wrong. And then at the same time go, and in the name of all good and holy, I love you more than anybody else here. How's that work? Let's look. It's a great question. Thank you for asking. Forgiveness, as I said, means to release. Biblically, this release happens in two different ways. It happens relationally, okay, which is kind of external, and it happens personally, which is kind of internal. It's a lot like this door that I happen to have here as an incredible prop in order for you to follow along and have your minds blown. It's like having two different keys to the same door and sitting on one side or the other. First, we have the offender. The offender holds the key to relational forgiveness. The offender holds the key to relational forgiveness. Then on the other side of the door, we have the injured. And the injured holds the key to personal forgiveness. The offender holds the key to relational forgiveness. And the offender holds the key to personal forgiveness. So the first thing we'll do is we'll start off with the relational forgiveness piece. And we're going to start off with offenders. Now, here's what's really important about this word. This word represents you. This word represents me. And this word represents us. Because we're all, to some degree, an offender. We all have hurt people. We all have done things. We've all said things. We've all uh, participated in things. We are all complicit in something. Now, the degree to which we've offended can vary deeply and greatly. Again, I'm not trying to bring, uh, uh, I'm not trying to make it all even. What I'm trying to do is simply say that when I talk about this word, please, please don't Uh, exclude yourself from this conversation because you feel you've never done anything to hurt anybody. The first thing you've done right now is deceive yourself. So you've offended yourself. Okay, so let's just start with that, if that's what you believe. The offender. The offender holds the key to relational forgiveness. And relational forgiveness has as its goal reconciliation. Relational forgiveness has as its goal reconciliation. Colossians 3.13 says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, this is a really, really important verse to understand correctly, because most likely, if you're anything like me, you learned this verse wrong and what it means wrong, especially if you learned it in a church context. Because for most people growing up in church, verses like this are used to blanket everyone with an even amount of of forgiveness. Ooh, controversial. Everyone with an even amount of forgiveness. But my question is, that part of the verse that says, as the Lord has forgiven you, do you understand how the Lord forgives you? 
Can I ask you what you think about Ephesians 4.32 that says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as Christ has forgiven you. So again, a second time it says, The Lord and Christ forgive. So how has Christ forgiven you? John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If. See, I asked about nine people this week when I did this talk. I said, hey, question. Are you as a Christian called to forgive someone who hasn't repented or confessed of their offense to you? Someone who doesn't think that what they've done to you is wrong. Are you called to forgive someone who's never asked for forgiveness? Every single person I asked said yes. And that's not true. See, the Lord doesn't forgive people who don't ask. That's why it says if. You have to ask for forgiveness because you are the offender. He is the injured. You are the offender. He is the injured. Therefore, verse after verse after verse says, hey, we're to forgive as the Lord forgives. And how does the Lord forgive? Based on two things, confession and repentance. Admitting openly, okay, confession straightforward means to agree with the injured party about how we have wronged the injured. It is to say what you think of me is true. That's what a confession is, by the way. So this haphazard, kind of half-hearted, especially guys loved, I, I, I sit in a lot of counseling sessions with folks and people will confess like, well, listen, I didn't do that and I don't think that's true, but I'm really sorry you feel that way. That is not a confession. Okay, that's not a confession. Confession is to agree with the injured that how they see you is true. So when you come before God, if you don't confess that you have offended him, that you have lived in a way that is sinful, that is, that is, I mean, think about Isaiah. Isaiah goes before God and he's a prophet and says, though I'm red as crimson, you can make me white as freshly fallen snow. He's a prophet. He should have said, though I have, I mean, I have some mud on my pants and I'm pink in some spots. He's like, no, though I am red as crimson, though I am covered in the sin and guilt of blood, you can make me white as freshly fallen snow. Paul, who was like legit, okay, better than me, better than most of us, in the ways God moved, says, hey, if there was a team of sinners, I would be the captain. Because there's a sense of confessing. You can't out-confess and agree more with how God sees us when Christ is set to the side, when you just go before him and proclaim him holy, you are naturally proclaiming yourself unholy. This is just what it means. It means to bring forth your whole self and confess to him, confess to him all that is true that he sees in you. Sometimes confession, you have to confess things you don't even see yet. You're like, God, I'm broken everywhere. I'm broken in places I don't even think I know I'm broken yet. That's why I'm in therapy. You confess this. Then you are called to repent. And to repent is to completely turn from the offending behavior. And you're supposed to turn from the offending behavior so much so that you literally produce fruit. Luke 3, 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You don't just get to go, hey, I'm going to go ahead and stop that behavior. You're going to forgive me, right? And then go do all the same behavior as if somehow your confession was enough. No, it's confession and repentance. And the Bible is very clear. Without confession and repentance, God does not forgive. That's why we have a heaven for people who confess and repent and a hell for people who don't. So stop telling everybody that your job is to come forward as if you're God. It's just another way of playing God, by the way. When you tell people in a really big and holy manner, well, you just need to forgive them and let it go. That is not biblical, and that's what God does. And he doesn't even let it go till they confess and repent because he is holy and just and righteous. So you're not holy and just and righteous, so stop preaching to people like that. It's not true, and it minimizes their pain. It minimizes their offense when you just act like you just went through it and walked out of it. These are those people I said earlier. You are not authentically proclaiming to be a human when you can tell somebody who's been wounded by another person who doesn't ask them for forgiveness, well, just walk away from it. Just forget it. This is not how our God talks about forgiveness. And this is not why our God died on a cross. We are to be people that forgive, but it requires confession and it requires repentance. And relational forgiveness 
It's held within the keys of the offender, and it is his or her job to do this, to confess and to repent. That's why Luke 17, 3 says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. It just doesn't say, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he never says anything about it, forgive him. It says if. John Murray, in his book, A Lesson on Forgiveness, this is what he said. Forgiveness is a definite act performed on the fulfillment of certain conditions. Forgiveness is something actively administered on the repentance of the person who is to be forgiven. We greatly impoverish ourselves and impair the relations that we should sustain to our brethren when we fail to appreciate what is involved in forgiveness. It is a big deal. And confession and repentance is required. And here's the most beautiful truth about it for those of you in the room who are deep offenders, okay? When you're like me, when you carry something that you've done and you're like, man, I just don't know. This is the best part about it. There's massive, massive, massive amounts of freedom in it because the way that God has set it up, it means that we are never stuck when it comes to our part of forgiveness. We can walk up to this door. We can unlock our, 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 uh, our side of the relationship with other people, just like when we go before God and we say, God, I am all these things. I'm red as crimson. I'm the chief of sinners. We unlock our side of the relationship and it is not our responsibility to manage what the injured does on the other side. That's why scripture is so clear about when we come knocking on God's door. That's why he says, I never leave because we have a guarantee that when we come to the door of God as the offenders to the injured and proclaim our brokenness and sin, he opens the door every time. But guess what? Humans don't. There are some times when you as the offender will break and you will repent and you will unlock the door of hoping for restored relationship and the other party wants nothing to do with it. And so you feel like there must be more to do. I can't be forgiven until they're good with me. That is not biblical. Your job is to confess and repent and have fruit in your life due to the repentance and change that's your job. Your job is to confess to those people or persons, and your job is to confess to God. This is our job as offenders. Now, there's another side of this. This is the ugly side of the door. By the way, I had this built on Friday. The guy told me it wasn't painted because I gave him short notice. I said, if Jesus asked you to build a door, I bet it would have been painted. Okay, so as you can see, I'm an offender in so many ways. Okay, then there's the pretty side of the door. And I don't mean pretty in a sense that it's easy. I mean pretty in that it's probably a little bit easier to understand. And this is the injured. This is a difficult, difficult topic to talk about. But I feel like because of the prayer, we forgive our debts and we forgive our debtors. We have to talk about the injured. When it comes to the injured, personal forgiveness... That's who holds the key. Personal forgiveness has as its goal release. If the uh, other side of the door, relational forgiveness has as its goal reconciliation or restoration of relationship, this side of the door has as its goal release. Because all sustained relationships, and I mean any that you're going to partake in, to some extent rely on a principle of forgiveness because we all mess up to some degree, God takes this particular side of the door very serious. We all recognize that we are not able to walk through and make justice happen when we are injured. That's why Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It reminds us that we are to be gentle with one another and yes, forgiving one another when they confess and repent as Christ has forgiven us. Luke 17, 4 says, and if a person in your life sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is a really hard and difficult topic that I think will make sense if you'll hear me out. We are called to forgive. As Christians, it's, it's unconditional, as a matter of fact. It's kind of brutal. For the other side of it, the, uh, the side, the relational forgiveness is conditional, right? It's based on confession and it's based on repentance. Whereas if someone truly confesses and repents in your life and they have fruit of that repentance, you are called to forgive. Now, let me finish before you wreck it, before you walk out mentally. Because there's people in here like, you have got to be kidding me. Don't listen. Just chill out a little bit. Okay. 
I could feel the whole room change. That's unbelievable, by the way. Everybody just take a deep breath. I'm, I'm walking you somewhere. I told you this wasn't going to be easy. That's why I warned you. We are called to forgive. We are called to forgive if someone confesses and repents because we have been forgiven much. We have been forgiven much. So we are called to forgive. We are charged, as a matter of fact, to forgive. But here's the thing. What we are charged to do is enter into the process of forgiveness. And that process can be as slow and laborious as we need it to be for our own healing. So here's what this doesn't mean. I'll put it on the screens. This does not mean we as the injured forget. This does not mean we as the injured trust them. This does not mean that we as the injured even have to relate to them in the same way as before. Nor does it mean the absence of consequences for those people who have confessed and repented. It just means we're charged to enter into the process of forgiveness, which is saying to someone, I recognize fruit in your life and that you're changing. Or through a, a, a mediator, I recognize you're hoping to change. But for my own safety, the safety of my family, the safety of my soul, I can't have anything to do with you. But I will continue to lift you up in prayer and I commit to the process, even if it's me never talking to you again. And it doesn't eliminate consequences. Think about David and Bathsheba. David's on the roof of a house. Sees a beautiful woman, says, I want to sleep with her. It's a friend of, it's, she is a, a wife of his friend Uriah, who, by the way, if you go back and look at that story, you Bible buffs, Uriah is one of David's mighty men in his cave of Adullam. That's how long he's known him. That's why he lives so close to the temple. He lives in a massive place of honor. This was a good friend's wife, probably a new wife. David was probably at the wedding, and he saw her, and he thought, I'm king. God loves me. I'm an injured person. That's a lot of times where deep sin starts. It's people not admitting they're offenders as well. He sees her. Uriah goes to war. He takes her. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. But David's a smart guy, so he calls Uriah back, puts him in her house, says, hey, just have a couple days with your wife. But Uriah is so messed up by the fact that he's not at war with his friends, he sleeps in the temple instead. David can't get him to sleep with his own wife while he's home. So now he knows everybody's going to know. So instead, you know what he does? He sends him back with orders to put him on the front line so he'll die. He has his friend killed so he can have his wife. Then he marries her. They have a baby. Baby's beautiful, healthy. Lives to be about a year. Suddenly, prophet walks into the room to David, tells him a really small story about a man who had a beautiful sheep. He raised the sheep with his kids, fed it from his table. But another man who wanted his beautiful sheep, although he had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sheep, wanted his beautiful sheep. And so in the middle of the night, he broke in, took the man's sheep, killed it, and ate it. David stood up on his throne, enraged at the injury. Said, whoever this man is, his consequences shall be deep. The prophet says, it's you, bro. That's my translation. It's you, bro. David falls Upon his knees, he confesses and he repents. And as he confesses and repents, his son becomes sick. He confesses and repents more. He fasts. He doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. He cries out to God. God, punish me, punish me, punish me. God, don't punish him. Son dies. See, just because you confess and repent doesn't mean you have no consequences. And as injured people, it doesn't mean that we release people from their consequences. It means that we simply recognize God is the bringer of those consequences. See, this is a beautiful, and I say this very specifically, a beautiful thing for people who have been injured by people who have died or who have moved away or who ignore altogether the injuries they've caused you in your life. I had a Christian one time, and I read this as well. This happened to me, and then I read it. Someone said, I can't believe you'd preach verses like the very next verse on my thing. Vengeance is mine. I can't believe you want me to think about God in like Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I can't believe you want me to think of God that way. And I, I told them, and then I read this in an article somewhere as well, where a man was confronted, and he said, you've obviously never experienced great horror in your life if you don't understand the compassionate beauty of what it means to know God brings his vengeance. If you've experienced horror, done to you or done around you, you know what it means to rest in the reality of God bringing his vengeance. And so I said a minute ago, 
that on this side, the injured holds the key to personal forgiveness. Here's what you're supposed to do in your process of forgiveness biblically. You are supposed to release what people have done to you to God. You're supposed to release it to God. You were supposed to trust in the just God who you just prayed to earlier's will would be done. You're supposed to trust that God's vengeance is his. He's like a cosmic bill collector and he never sleeps. Right? He doesn't eat. He doesn't get distracted. He doesn't take vacation. You think you are going to bring damage to people that have brought damage to you? God says over and over and over, hey, I'll do that. Don't poison yourself with that. I'll do it because I'll do it righteously. I'll do it perfectly. So people who have been injured and abused, whose abusers have died or who have moved away or who never came to the light or who were abused and never discovered, these people can release personally with their side of the key to God that vengeance will be his. And like the other side of the door, this is the beautiful place that we get to sit in where once again now we're not stuck. As an injured party, I'm not stuck because I can release the people who have brought trauma to my life to God and know that God whose will will be done will bring his justice. Do you know what's so beautiful about this place? Is that the more I get to know the cross of Christ and the more I get to know the people that have offended me, the more that I see the bigness and the greatness of the cross of Christ is even bigger than the people who've caused me harm. So I somehow in my mind know that if those people were to come to Christ and his blood shed over them like it shed over me, that then justice would be met. But if they don't, ha, oh, if they don't. See, now this spirit, right, that rises up in us as you think about that, you might think, well, that's not biblical. Well, you're wrong. Second Timothy 4, Paul is being oppressed. He's being put in prison. He's being persecuted. He writes letters to Timothy about how to behave, who to be. Then he says this about a particular man that brought him great harm. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed, opposed our message. He seems to take great satisfaction in knowing God's got him. He did some damage to me, but don't you worry, God's got him. Mm -hmm. Now there's believers that also did damage to Paul. Listen to his tone change. So much duplicity just in this verse. Verse 16, and at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. Everyone deserted me. May it not be charged against them. See, there's this idea that as we grow in the faith, we see other believers in their struggle and we're able to, to recognize the cross of Christ in their life. And then we see the world that is, it opposes and attacks against the cross of Christ. And somewhere in our Christian mythology, we came to this idea that Christians are passive and I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. No, as a Christian who's confessed and repented, I forgive you. As somebody who's trying to destroy me or offended me or hurt me, guess what? God says, vengeance is his. You know what I do? I release you to him. I don't carry that stuff. That's going to bring poison to me. And I hope you see the cross of Christ and cross over to recognizing the incredible value of his blood. But if you don't, don't think for a second you get away with any kind of thing. Don't think for a second I get away with any kind of thing. See, we're all injured. We're all oppressed. We're all people who live in this way. And that's why it's so very important to understand this and to see this and to live in this way. It is only putting ourselves in both of these places that we can appropriately see how God sees us. And then we can receive the overpowering and overcoming love of who he is. Whether it's day by day or situation by situation, we are called to show our trust in him, the one whose will we believe should be done because he's holy through receiving his provision and his forgiveness. And he is moving slow to get it. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Externally or internally, God says, trust me, I will make sure that you're okay. About a week and a half, two weeks ago, my wife wanted some Taco Bell. And I was like, honey, I don't eat that kind of unhealthy stuff. <laughs> she wanted some Taco Bell. And 
when I pulled up to the drive-thru at the Taco Bell, the lady on the thing said, hey, just a minute, we have a problem. It's going to be a moment before I come back to you. I said, okay. And all of a sudden, I heard this singing, little bird singing. And I looked up above uh, the, the little speaker, and this was pretty close. I mean, if I would have got out, I could have reached out and touched him. was this little brown canary-looking bird with a bright red head. I'd never seen one around here before. And he was just sort of singing, but kind of nonchalantly. And I was really surprised at how much attention he was drawing to himself. And I started thinking about that other sparrow with the cat. <laughs> and I was like, man, you're, you are really singing loud. And there could be cats around here, like anywhere. And he, I, this, is true, this is truly what happened. And I'm processing because I do this because I have a weird mind. And I was sitting there looking like, I wonder if there's a cat watching him right now like he's watching me. And this little bird's singing, singing, and he saw me. Right, you know how birds kind of look sideways, they saw me? And he saw me, and I thought, oh, he's going to fly away. He sees me. And all of a sudden, he's like, he puffed up his feathers really big, and then he just sang right at me, like, ah! like, right at me. And I was like, Aaron, look at this bird. And she's like, what is he doing? And he just, I mean, it was, it was, it was 45 seconds. And I thought, you're going to die, bird. You're going to die. I, there's, something's going to come and eat you. And he just sang and sang and sang and sang and sang and sang. And I was sitting there, and suddenly I just, I got this sense of, like, God's like, don't you shut my bird up. <laughs> it was like, I got it. I got it. I got what I'm preaching today that I learned in therapy. See, this bird, he's not thinking about cats or cancer. He's not thinking about all the stuff that could happen to him. He's just living his life. And when we don't understand that internally and externally, God is trying to bring us into a balanced place where we can puff up and sing our song, till we're no more, then my friends, we are missing out. That bird lives a more stress-free life than I do. That bird probably experiences more pure joy than I do and is probably living to his full potential better than I am on the Taco Bell speaker stand. <laughs> what kind of life am I living when I'm looking at a bird like, I'm so jealous of you. <laughs> Look at you, singing your song. You don't care about cats or people, nothing. You're not even that impressive of a bird. You're not thinking like, what? This is my whole life right here. Stupid redhead and brown body. What sense does this make? No, he's like, you staring at me? I got an audience. That's what he was thinking like. Oh, I got an audience. Like he was, he was like, you want to listen? I'll sing my song. And I think sometimes we don't realize we have an audience. God is watching and he's looking and he's listening and he wants to engage with you so much. And you're supposed to sing your song, but you're too worried about cats and cancer. We're supposed to be these people. He's called us to be these people. This is what's supposed to make us different in this world. We're people who overcome. We're people who overcome. So here's what I want to do. I want to have the band come out here in just a second. We're just going to sing one song because I went a little over with my bird story. We tell Keith, blame it on the bird. I want to offer communion to people who understand what it means for themselves. Just during the song, it's not going to be very formal. But if you feel like you need to come down and be released from something, if you feel like you need to release things that have happened to you to God, if you feel like you need to, to, to repent for things you've done, again, also being reconciled in relationship to him and to others, then this, this communion is for you. And it's really for all of us. But... God has overcome the things in our life that keep us from singing our songs. He's overcome all the cats and all the canaries. And he just wants you to do what you do. And do it well. Live well. Experience the freedom and the harmony he wants to bring through giving over your internal and external selves. Through trusting him with daily bread, with debt you owe, and with debt you can forgive. Let's lift this time to him. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the way that you're bringing so many people to a place of honest evaluation. I thank you, Lord, that we can take just a moment to release some of these things back to you that have hurt us, that have injured us. I also ask, Lord, that we would be able to reconcile the things that we've done to other people, that we would be able to perhaps, God, say to you yourself, God, it's me. I've offended you. Please accept me. Please forgive me. 
please reconcile yourself in relationship to me. For the injured in the room, Lord, I pray for healing. I pray for release. I pray for songs to be sang again. God, we are so blessed to be in this community, to be your children and to learn from your scripture and your spirit. We live this time of releasing and reconciling, reconciling communion to you now. And all God's people said, amen.